how is it over uh recording at the cabin um it's nice and spacious here um we'll have to have you guys out we have we have a bunch of beds up here and uh i'm just up in the in the upper section so it should be relatively quiet but you'll probably hear my daughter and wife talking so it's fine I, i'm already gonna have to learn to live with kids running around talking a lot we just had new neighbors move in and i'm hearing them like the kids trouncing up and down all over the place all day and i'm just thinking god it's so it's gonna mess up the recording really bad because they're so loud <laughs> i thought you were about to announce you're having kids no thank no not yet not during this or any time need to get a little bit more stable first the Twingy cast the least romantic place to propose marriage and the worst place <laughs> to announce you're having kids by the way mm-hmm. once you start paying me a more suitable income maybe then i can consider uh starting up a family how much exposure do you need to be able to have a kid um <laughs> I, don't, I don't know uh, can you give me a book deal let's start with that can we give the kid exposure would that be good enough sure are, are we going to use the kid as a promotional tool maybe that would help new new kid at twingeeks.com uh, i don't know how well that ties in with our site We're, twin, this is, first of all this children. is not a very family friendly podcast we use a lot of no. profanities and innuendos no it's very unfriendly to families <laughs> anti-family yeah yeah, yeah uh, thank you calvin for still making this uh work and recording on location without your typical amount of equipment so I mean, I, I usually sound better than you anyway with my very husky, manly voice, but uh, now the quality is just going to be very, very different, obviously. Well, I'm doing what I can with a phone and um, a notepad. So. Yeah. Well, you took notes this time? That's good. No, uh, I just wrote down names of things so I could mispronunciate them properly. Mispronunciate? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, what do we have to start news this week? New New movie stuff, I'm assuming. We have the launch of Peacock this week, which is NBC's service. Um, they have a well, they have all the NBC shows, and they preface it more as uh, you open it up, and it looks like a TV station. You go through channels, and there's like a Office channel or um, a Hell's Kitchen channel. So, uh, for people familiar with TV who are just starting to cut the cords, it feels like the easiest transition point. But uh, also, a lot of properties people really love, you know, like uh, The Office and Parks and Rec and all those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know Peacock has been discussed for a long time as one of like the major streaming things to pop up, even though it just now got its launch. But uh, you have to remind me of the models, because I think at one point there was a free version of it, like you can just sign up. Um, that's what it feels like now. I mean, I just went in there and it, it let me sign up for free. I haven't like investigated the pricing models, but I assume they're similar to everything else after a while. Mm-hmm. But the the promise of a free like base level entry is really great because you know then you're you're getting all the benefits of the streaming service, particularly if they have all of those old shows you love and want to revisit uh, at no cost. Then that's that's some really great incentive just to sign up, and then I'm sure it's an easy stepping stone from there to the paid model, where I assume more premium content is going to come from. I assume so. Um, I've just kind of scrolled through things. Um, I like how slidey it feels on the phone. I don't know how the interface is anywhere else because well, my means are a little bit limited here, so I look at things where I can. But right. um, nice. Uh, <laughs> Nice sectioning and stuff, uh, uh, appropriate for today. Hitchcock sections, so um, 
I'll be able to usurp you guys on your account. I'm, <laughs> so, I, so have, they, I have thir- 14 total after today. So they have uh, like classic stuff as well then? Yeah, yeah, they have a, they have a range of classic stuff. I, uh, there was a, <laughs> a serious cinema section, which throws me <laughs> off. Is the rest not serious? Uh, I feel like that implies anything not worth serious consideration. Um, there's also a cult corner and hidden gen section, or it should just say shit that Calvin cares about. Like <laughs> a lot of Lynch and uh, uh, movies about like uh, drug use in the 90s, and that's stuff I care about. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a classic monster section. They have a universal section. Uh, so there's some stuff in there. I, it feels formidable at launch, but uh, so did HBO, and I don't I don't keep coming back to that necessarily because I have Criterion. And, Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and uh, Canopy and uh, how many do you need? Yeah, and uh, you know that's always kind of the big debate going on now is that what are the essential streaming services? And it's, of course, it's going to differ for different people. Uh, uh, for us, of course, the the Criterion Channel will always be the number one essential service, uh, followed closely some, by something like uh, Amazon or Canopy, which have uh, a huge plethora of, of ranging. Uh, access to stuff that you can't really get otherwise whereas you know the more popular platforms like Netflix and Hulu are very uh, contemporary and new content focused um, I mean yeah if you if you want to get on watch do the right thing and some classic monster movies uh, they have a western section <laughs> the western section starts with Jonah Hex so oh, oh they, uh. <laughs> they make some strange choices about their labeling and what they're putting forward but I mean uh, I, a lot of I guess that's a Western, but not, not the kind not of the flagship Western. Yeah. <laughs> not the first thing I want to see that's going to make me investigate the menu. Then there were all classics after that, but not a, not a very varied or interesting range, pretty generic Western. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting though that they still have stuff like you mentioned, uh, a Hitchcock section. Uh, you know, there, there are some streaming services where you can get uh, different kinds of ones, but uh, some of the services are held by, um, you know, they, they have uh, Hitchcock stuff is kind of spread around uh, various oh, yeah. different places. So I was surprised to see there's uh, stuff I need to see, like Shadow of a Doubt, Trouble with Harry, Man Who Knew Too Much, Arnie. Okay, Still so they, has, they Torn Curtain. Yeah, they must. They have like the the major Hitchcock collection where that, that's like the the bulk collection, and you see that distributed a lot. Like the major Blu-ray sets have all yeah. of those ones. They contain a lot of his uh, uh, films that were kind of lost for twenty years or so. Which uh, Rope is one of, which we'll be covering. Yeah, there were five of those that were lost for about uh, three decades, I believe, but which we'll get into in a bit. Yeah. Um, it's it's nice though. I like the idea of TV channels. I mean, I sometimes I just want to throw something on and let it make choices for me. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's nice that it's a new service. And this one, this is just the free level that you've been looking at, right? Like I believe, so I I haven't even tried to launch anything, so I don't know. If me yet. Uh, we could check back on that stuff. Yeah, I'll be interested to hear more about it and also see how uh, everyone else on the internet has, you know, kind of reacts and uh, considers Peacock as a uh, viable player in the streaming market. For me, it's mostly about what are you adding to the value? Like, uh, if it's all just old stuff that's thrown on a channel, I'm not sure that's that compelling. But something like Criterion, it's stuff that you're not, you're just not going to find if they don't add it. And 
they'll add the extras and it's like what are you doing they put so much work into every release and i i don't know what peacock has to launch like i don't think i don't know if they're making unique content i haven't found any of that so that's what i'm looking for all right. Well, I, I imagine they will, or at least, you know, at, at the very least, it'll be an interesting transition from more uh, cable, you know, focus to, again, the, the streaming uh, populace here where everyone's kind of uh, migrating towards. And hopefully I think everyone else follows suit because cable is, is basically out at this point. We need to transition away and uh, work on the next thing, which is, which is streaming now. That's where everyone's at. Yeah, we're we're getting very close to that generational change, um, and uh, for all of us that have grown up with our with our summers being at the movies, that's no longer an option this year. As and it's been moved indefinitely, so uh, mm-hmm. there are a lot of changing factors where did, this is the right time to move things. I gotta ask: Did anyone think that Tenant wasn't going to get delayed? It's a, it's in August. <laughs> it's in August now, but I mean. It's gonna get delayed again. It's not. No, it it's been moved past August. It it no Is longer it? has any date. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought I saw it was moved to August, but I guess you know it was longer than that. Maybe I misread it. It was moved to August before, and now it's moved indefinitely. So no longer releasing this summer or this fall, likely probably next year. Yeah, I, I and I imagine that's gonna be the same fate for every other big name production that was slated for this year. Uh, and it's it's for the best. Uh, you know, there's it, it's not a good place to uh, go again. You know, when things are still reading here. Although I did read that Tenet is supposedly still going to release in some international markets. Uh, though I'm which, not I'm not sure ex- if that is going to for sure be the case. It seems like they might have a piracy problem at that point. But um, right, they're looking at they need to recoup. $800 million. So that's no studio will take a haircut on that because that's, that's more than you'll ever make on demand. I mean, maybe Tenet could get like a, a few hundred million on demand, but uh, it, it needs the IMAX too. I mean, why would you release a Christopher Nolan movie in any other way? I got a, I got a feeling if my, my prediction is that they're going to release to the markets that are going to be open overseas now, yeah. you know, people who actually got their shit together and quelled the virus so that they can open up theaters again. And uh, it's, it's going to suck that, you know, the American audiences are going to watch pirated versions of it on their phone, but it's really the only way that the studio can make money off of this giant pit that they've dug now with the production without just delaying it for several years and possibly going bankrupt in the process. Yeah, it's not going to be good for our theaters because all the independent ones that have been saying that they need to open as soon as possible are probably shuttering now. Um, uh, that'll be unfortunate for everyone, I think. But, uh, but what what can you do? I mean, if we're not going to take care of the virus, we can't worry about our movie theaters. Well, there's not, there's not a lot of, uh, you know help going on from a, a government level as well to, you know, uh, give additional funding or assistance to the, the small businesses, you know, even just the, us on a person to person level as well here, we, we haven't gotten any further assistance than a single check that was issued, you know, four months ago. And the small businesses okay. are struggling, you know, just as much, if not more. And it's, it's going to continue to be the case if, if we don't, you know, if we can't, puts you know like like concerns about inflation of the budget aside and you know really help to assist the, the businesses that 
can't operate right now. Absolutely. And um, in some ways, I've been enjoying the, the difference of this year. Uh, for me, it's refreshing almost to focus entirely on these mid-budget movies and uh, a lot more international productions. Uh, because when theaters are open, you're kind of you're kind of pushed into uh, American productions and um, medium to very large budgets. And what's trending on social media, uh, those are the passes you get as critics. So, yeah, uh, in well, some ways, I'm enjoying this. I, I think like two of the major ones you got, of course, you know, to to go see before everything shut down was Bad Boys for Life and Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> yeah, I you end up doing that stuff and you end up with uh, trolls world tour. And as the, as the things have gone, I've, I've been able to kind of refocus my coverage around stuff that I genuinely care about. So in some ways it's a refocusing and looking at what we can do in the future to uh, kind of better serve the content that matters. Yeah. Ho- hopefully the avenues that have opened up to spotlight these uh, smaller productions, these indie works, uh, will continue to flourish after things have opened up more again and coverage for those, uh, you know, uh, more independent works uh, can continue to grow and, uh, you know, uh, flourish here, uh, especially on well, our side. We, I hope we can keep that up. Should we discuss a couple sure. uh, virtual cinema? Yeah, let's hear three, but let's see how they go on time. All right. Uh, the Painted Bird, which um, <laughs> I... I've been waiting years to see Come and See because I'm terrified of that movie. And this is finally my push to uh, go explore one of the centerpieces of, um, of foreign cinema that I've been missing all these years. I, and, and I was shocked by it still, uh, not as much as I thought it would be. Um, I think Painted Bird is what I was actually afraid of uh, because Painted Bird is unrelenting. It's, uh, it's masochism and abuse and rape and murder and bestiality and uh, pedophilia everything that you you wouldn't want to watch but then it's framed in the most beautiful uh black and white by a cinematographer vladimir smutney who does incredible stuff i mean every every frame's a painting as as everyone says um uh this section should be fun for our our friend uh pavlos who uh, likes my pronunciation um (laughs) (laughs) so we have vaclav marhul that, that'll be the director. <laughs> uh, based on the book of uh, Jersey, Kosin, Kiski, Naval. There you go, Pavlos. I had to go check because I was like, Jersey doesn't sound right. But then I looked at it and I'm like, I don't know how else I'd pronounce that. It's like, it's got a Z in there. So yeah. <laughs> that's the only different thing. But yeah, yeah I, sure. I, I admire your attempts to just kind of push through these these difficult pronunciations here <laughs> and peter kotler is the boy we know that much <laughs> and he's no uh flyora <laughs> come and see but i think he does a good job as the boy and he has to hold the weight of three hours of uh intense black and white um, i saw some of our seattle film critic friends uh just completely um shocked by this and then they're you know i i think they're used to more regular entertainments and where's the entertainment watching this completely abusive three-hour picture and um for me it doesn't have to be entertaining it, it just has to be beautiful i think it goes probably a little bit too long and it doesn't really have a heart uh, we don't really find any goodness 
like in its blackness and in its darkness. And I feel like the um, for come and see, I feel like there's huge social messaging. I don't know what this one means about a boy that goes between nine chapters of people's houses and faces all the horrors of humanity. Um, in come and see, I, it has a great historical wrapping. We've talked a lot about like Spike Lee and how he forces things in, but in that it's it's very evocative and close to the actual horror of the story. It it makes sense and it's exciting how it's done. It's very creative. It's good to hear. It's uh, uh, regrettable though that you have uh, some critic friends who don't see the value in uh, intensive and uh, painful kind of uh, you know emotional cinema uh, because yeah. they're they're missing out on so very much of the the medium's capability if they're only looking for cheap entertainment. Um, you know. Uh, <laughs> The, the point of these is to of uh, film in general, I feel is like to emotionally move you in either one direction or the other. And some of the most satisfying uh, films can be just absolutely heart wrenching and emotionally, you know, ex you know, destructive and you never want to see them again, but those are memories that you'll, you'll carry with you and remember how powerful they can, that, that film can truly be that can affect you in such a horrific and terrifying way. Well, I think that's perfectly said. Like, I'm not going to ever watch this again. <laughs> yeah. but I'm so grateful that I got to spend three hours of my life uh, completely, like, in the muck and uh, feeling feeling bad. But between this and come and see this week, I need to have a lighter week. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. Maybe. Let's uh, <laughs> let's let's tackle some good old fashioned Hollywood musicals next time. Maybe so you can feel better. <laughs> For me, like, I cut my teeth on some like Pasolini. I've seen Salo, and I've seen you know, I've seen like all the all the movies people talk about when they talk about controversial films, like just our curiosity for me. I like the idea of a painful experience. And um, I like the idea that movie isn't, movies aren't just to entertain us. I feel like that's such a limited perspective that uh, they could do one thing. I, they, they have capacity to do everything, but that we could feel like. They... Yeah. Uh, not the, again, entertaining movies are the best. They're the bread and butter of my, you know, consumption but you need something to balance it out. You know, certainly you need the occasional hard watch to really, you know, show the spectrum of emotion that not only the movies are capable of, but that you are capable of experiencing as a, as a viewer and as a person. Um, I think there's also a point without the cinematography, I don't think I could recommend it. Um, it there's just too much darkness for me uh, without any heart or takeaway. Um, but just just watch it i mean even yeah. if you watch it on mute and uh, frame every one of the pictures that's fine with me i it's so gorgeous that i i wish i could give it a higher rating i i, I didn't enjoy myself i don't like the movie i think it's the most gorgeous movie of the year <laughs> do, do you, when you say you don't like it do you mean in the context of that it's hard to watch or that you think it's not as good as it should be i think both i i I do want to recommend it just for the cinematography and that it is the most gorgeous movie of 2020, probably. Uh, funny how the last two years, uh, like last year, the best movie of 2019 was shot in late 1930s technology, right? So mm -hmm. uh, it's funny how we, uh, how we might regress during these times and find that uh, maybe the important things were just uh, proper framing and uh, composition of an image and not so much uh, effects and Avengers. Right. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's a bold claim to say it's the best film of, you know, or best looking film of 2020 when there's so many films that were slated to come out that aren't going to. I mean, think I about know. it. If it was, if it was able to compete with something like uh, the new mutants, we might be saying something different here. <laughs> <laughs>
which might be coming to Disney Plus this week. That that's the rumor. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, it's been supposed to come out for like almost five years now or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's um, it's a it's an enigma, really. I would rather it just not exist anymore. Just like thirty years from now, we're still talking about its eventual release. <laughs> uh, I it's true. It'll probably join like the the other. Uh, <laughs> you know, focus features like Cloverfield Paradox and Lovebirds and Artemis Fowl that could drop this way. Uh, I, th- I thought you were going to say, like, on, on, the, on the other end, if it never releases, we'll include it in the Pantheon with uh, the Magnificent Ambersons and Eric von Stroheim's Greed as lost works <laughs> that we'll never get to experience in full. <laughs> I wish I'd said that. The Magnificent Mutants would be a, a good replacement title. So, so, uh, are, am I going to review that? Is someone else maybe we could put bro maybe. on that I, like I was gonna say idea. i was gonna say it's it's been a while for bro we we need to poke him again about bond stuff and see if he's gonna revive that, <laughs> that. if i mean at this point that's indefinitely delayed too but maybe we can at least get him to talk about uh the the sean connery revival one like never say die again or something i don't remember what it was called bro or so hard meet our date that says you know, Bond was supposed to be out by now. Uh, he put all the work in. He covered every Bond for the site. And now it's mid-2021 is our date. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's such a shame. I, I genuinely believe that his Bond series is one of the, the highlight works of, of our entire site. It's so yeah, uh, comprehensive and entertaining. And uh, I, I would love to get more from him. So I hope we can we can poke him to come out of retirement again for that. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, he'll be covering video games on our show. Uh, he'll be back this week on their new show. Yeah, that was nice that you were able to cover last minute for for his uh, uh, reprieve uh, and talk about uh, the frisbee game with Pavlos. <laughs> the yeah, we we play a lot of it right after too. Um, and it's funny because if you play it right after, I had so many thoughts racing through ahead of things I should have said, which is how podcasts always go anyway. Uh, totally. I mean, it's going to happen here as well, where I'm going to miss, uh, like, we're going to skip over the entire homosexual subtext of rope and be like, oops, that's kind of a big component we forgot to mention. That happens that's all the, the time. That's the only thing I'm going to talk about. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> is there, what, how far into this podcast are we? Do we have a timer? Uh, I started a timer, like, after a good portion of us talking. So, uh, because this is a, a, not our usual recording setup, we're, we're only a little bit in. You can go a couple more films. Okay. Um, you want to talk about the rental? The rental? Yeah, I just reviewed that on the website. Right, um, right, right, right. I'm. Uh, it's coming new, back to me. New film from IFC. Um, the one where I make a joke about millennials never affording housing at their home. Yes, it's it's a it's a hurtful joke because it's true. It <laughs> uh, all good jokes are. Uh, <laughs> so it's just about a couple two couples who rent a vacation home on the Oregon coast. So you figure I have to cover it anyway. Um, it is the directing debut of Dave Branco, um, who is very handsome and we should be offended if he's good at both acting, looking handsome and directing. And thankfully he, he's not the best because I couldn't handle it. <laughs> that, that, would, that would be a, a shame. It'd be the, I don't know, the equivalent of an Orson Welles of our time, I guess. <laughs> Um, and his wife uh, Allison Breeze in in the movie and plays very well I thought that's that's the real thing to be jealous of he's married to Allison Breeze no kidding Um, 
and it becomes like a Jeremy or a, a sorry a, a jealousy plot. Um, and there is uh, a weird subtext in it about racism. It doesn't really address any of its problems. Um, there's I I don't really know where to go with it because uh, there's so little there, and I've already reviewed it on the site. You did, a, you did a good job reviewing it. I'm I'm inclined just to point people there because despite, I mean, like, because it came to me and said, oh, I don't know exactly what to say about this. and But you put a lot out there and explained your issues with the film very uh, succinctly and well. And you put in a clever twist of, of the knife at the end there. I, I don't think, <laughs> in a, I don't think in a disrespectful way. <laughs> and I wouldn't want to give too much of that away. I'd rather point people toward that review. Sometimes the, uh, the written criticism is all we need to point out. And oh, yeah. I mean, it, it would be nice if the people who listen to our show also read the content read that we produce site. for our, our website as well. This is supposed to be a companion, you know, work to our, our writing, not the, the main selling point. But sometimes I feel like it's the other way around. <laughs> okay. And now we'll turn the page to the Twin Geek cast. We'll be going through each of our articles this week. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the rental, though, it's going to be out on IFC this Friday when this releases, so as of today. Uh, do you have uh, any any other uh, reviews to cover that we should highlight for? Uh, um, I could week? cover briefly She Dies Tomorrow, which I found very experimental and actually new. Have you heard of this one? Uh, I've not heard of this one yet. Uh, tell me a little bit about it. Um, it's from... Um, sorry, I'm losing my note. Uh, Amy Simetz, a pretty good director, experimenting a lot with color. And uh, the real fear of this movie is one that feels very real now. Uh, there's a contagion going around, but it's a contagion of fear that we're going to die the next day. Uh, so one young girl says, uh, I want, I'm going to die tomorrow. I want them to turn me into a leather coat. And, and her mom hears it, and she's like, oh, shit. Uh, this isn't real, this isn't your reality. Then she goes to a house party and, and says it to her friends, I'm going to die tomorrow. And they you know, they don't believe her. And then they begin saying it to themselves. They begin questioning why they, why they aren't living each day like it's their last, but, but in the most gruesome way you can imagine. And um, this is the first one, I've, other than Painted Bird, that I really wish I could see in the theater to have full impact. Uh, so much color grading and very interesting technique uh, it feels experimental and not formatted like another film um, can't think of any comparisons really at all in its psychological experience and I think that's new for horror and I, I should have a review next week that's um, good there's something to look forward to as well uh, maybe we'll save the rest of your thoughts for for that piece and guide people again to our website to to read more thoughts in a in a in a much more you know uh precisely worded manner our thoughts can be kind of scrambled here sometimes as we as we work to get them all out in as many words as possible yeah i mean we just want to point people to what we're watching and what's going on in the movies and then uh hopefully our our website covers the rest yeah and uh other things we're watching of course include some uh classics that can, we continue to love to cover here uh, this week, we return to the great master Alfred Hitchcock and uh, his first color film in 1948, Rope. Okay, let's talk about gay. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot to talk about with Rope, I think, which is uh, one of his more overlooked, but not really overlooked. Like it's in it's in the more like 
culty kind of area, like like the second tier of Hitchcock. Once you get past your North by Northwests and Psychos and Vertigos and stuff, you usually watch Rope shortly after that. I think. I'd say second tier of awareness is probably fair for it. That it is um, one of the five that were lost for three decades, and uh, I kind of left to his daughter in state, and then they they came back. I think this came back around nineteen eighty four. Um, and even originally when it was released, it was already banned from several American theaters. <laughs> There's a lot going on in this picture that uh, kind of worried people. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's it's very interesting work, very good work, I think. But sometimes it gets dismissed as being just this solely like single gimmick experimental film. Uh, and it is very much that in, in a lot of ways, but it has a lot more himself. going on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah even Hitchcock and uh, uh, Hitchcock Star. himself says it's a stunt. Jimmy Stewart said it wasn't successful, he thought, but, you know, sometimes the people who make their work are have no idea what they're talking about. It's true. Um, Sometimes they're too close to their project to render that kind of verdict for him. His creation myth they made for himself might be, this was a stunt. Um, It's Hitchcock's first film as a producer as well. There's so many firsts here, uh, just for movies and for Hitchcock, and um, that that I think he's emboldened by the idea that he could be a producer and that he could play in color. And as if that weren't challenging enough um, to make it all done in a kind of continuous shot. Yeah, it's uh, and it's one of the earlier examples we point to of that. Lately, there's been a, a bigger string of those with the advances in digital technology, stuff like uh, Birdman, which won, uh, you know, the Oscar and such. And then... Uh, just last year, we had 1917, which attempted similarly. But I, f- I found interesting the the technique here is actually extremely different than the approach to those films, because despite how much uh, shifting there is from room to room in here and, and how contained it is, the camera doesn't move as much as you would think with this kind of uh, process. It doesn't draw as much attention to itself as like those later films do. Yeah, I don't feel like it has. It, I don't feel like it has a lot of room to show off in that way because they're already limited so much by, well, their one shot they have to already move all the furniture and had to invent how to do that silently. So, um, if one if one noise is made, you have to redo the whole shot back then, and you have old noisy ass cameras and uh, sliders and just to to make everything silent and make all the furniture movable and have the right floors. It's it's very precise, this film. It's surprisingly so. And that's one thing I think that's easy to uh, overlook or underappreciate about it is the technical aspects going on behind all of this. Like, I think one of the things you don't consider is not only uh, do you not see like all the lighting setups that have to constantly be shifted and altered throughout the film. There's there's no reveal of that. But also the the movement of the camera itself on a, on a dolly is never... Uh, perceptible uh, within the frame like it's not running on a track like a typical dolly would would work you know they have to have it separate because otherwise you would see it all across the floor because there's no way to move it with you know throughout how many uh, long the the shots last and such and shifting between rooms to room you would you would catch that on screen there's yeah especially like in the lighting of course moving to color um Hitchcock's famously said nobody ever found out how to light a color movie. Um, I'm not sure he feels they would have known. Maybe um, maybe there are some prestige cinematographers who know 
I mean, uh, how to overexpose lighting, but he felt that there was no proper way to light it, like there was black and white. I don't know. I mean, I might show him Vertigo, and he might change his mind because <laughs> that's <laughs> one think, of the best looking color movies ever made. That's you yeah. know, even here in his first color film, I would say that the the colors are are very consciously considered, and uh, yeah, you, you know, they're they're very uh, they 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 come out in lots of ways. They're a little uh bright or like like considered at times but particularly in the costume design i think colors are, are very well considered here which is again another kind of seed on the way to getting up to vertigo which is the the masterpiece in that regard yeah the costumes are good and i like that the lighting changes throughout the day so they have to keep adjusting while they're even mid-shot and, oh, that, um, and that's, they, they have to do a lot with like set design as well that's one thing is particularly uh there's a great set piece in the in the background there the the city uh landscape there you see the new york skyline uh and while that could have very easily just been a a scrim drawing you know a, a mat in the back there uh it's like a full miniature set that they set up with uh you know wired lighting inside the building so when it comes to nighttime you see all the lights going off and stuff there's uh, you know, an operating smokestack you see throughout, you know, the smoke is actually going and moving. And it's this really intricate background piece that's just there for aesthetic purposes. But, you know, there's a lot put into it. And it's it's really incredible to look at. And you can really see all I the mean, hard work. I mean, they it's different than like some movies where you have one scene in a building and you could just paint it on like a, in some other Hitchcock movies, you'll just see like the painted background. But then they'll have like the, they'll have like the glass shards of smoke that are actually being operated and moved and throughout the movie there's changes and all of that and uh hitchcock also famously said that uh, he think it was overexposed and that uh the person who lit the film had never seen a sunset in his life i don't know again a lot of that adds to the theatrical nature of it because this is probably one of the best uh renditions of a stage uh property that you'll probably ever see because it does maintain that stage quality that few other films manage to capture this is something we talked about a little bit uh, a couple weeks ago in regards to hamilton uh not not that it's necessarily related to this but the idea of capturing the feeling of a live stage performance rope is one of the few films that comes close to that by using uh extended long takes throughout the entire of the, of the film while also incorporating the medium to accentuate that. Because again, it doesn't call uh, attention to itself as much with the camera, except for during very key important moments where it use a lot, utilizes the power of uh, close-ups and shot changes and cutting in particular in very key moments to uh, accentuate moments that you wouldn't be able to on stage. So, so it kind of marries the two concepts together in a beautiful way. It's really funny to me when they do the the very obvious cuts to, to move into a guy's uh, coat jacket. Uh, it's it's yeah. really interesting because, of course, the cameras could only handle a little bit of film, so uh, they'd have to change the the entire film reel between the the, uh, the takes there. At the time, film magazines would only be able to film for about ten to twelve minutes at most. Uh, so every 10 or 12, uh, 12 minutes or so, the, the shot changes by uh, zooming in, uh, or, or not zooming necessarily, but dollying into uh, someone's back or like in the chest at one point or whatnot to a black uh, screen. And then it uh, comes back out and the, the shot continues on 
as if uh, nothing had changed. But it, it can be awkward at times. It's not flawless. There's, you know, like there's shots where it, it moves in and, and a person is like passing by. And then when it comes, when the person outs again, you can tell they're starting from a standing position as opposed to still moving from one, uh, you know, from across the the screen to the other side. Mostly, I think the the set's very important. The way that it is so established and creates so much context in our head. That in the middle of the room, we have our our casket dining table, which is one of my favorite set pieces in a film. Yeah, I, that, I, that that's centerpiece to every action. I guess we should back up just a second to kind of establish the conceit of rope, which what is that. Uh, these two uh, kind of upper class uh, graduate students are, uh, you know, have decided to enact um, on this philosophical idea of, uh, you know, this, this ubermensch kind of quality and their superiority over, uh, you know, the lesser people in the world. And they uh, kill one of their former classmates just for the joy and saying that they can do it. And then uh, to continue to get off on that idea, they... Uh, hide his body in a trunk and then host a party using that trunk as the the dinner uh, table while all the guests uh, ponder and wonder where their their friend is as he's supposed to be at the party as well. It makes sense that I would have really grappled onto it as a high school or in a um, in a class about Alfred Hitchcock because all the Nietzschean premise and um, something about engaging with like your school materials and learning this kind of Nietzschean um, existentialism and then practicing it on a, on a class play is, is kind of appealing and sexy in itself if you are a high schooler and you're in that position. Um, and just the relationship between the boys is really enticing. Um, they, they play off each other wonderfully and they have their uh, a signature dynamic that's uh, very homosexual. I don't even feel like it's, it's coded anymore. I, I get the feeling that it's very intentional and I think that is the movie. It it is uh, intentional, but it's also like a kind of minor facet. Obviously, with the, the I don't production think so at all. No. Well, well, it, I wouldn't say it's minor at all. I'd say that's the implicit thing. Yeah, it, it's implicit, but it's not as like crucial. I don't know. It's it, it's this interesting kind of thing because it is subtextual, but uh, a lot of what's going on in the actual themes at play, the homosexual aspect is kind of, uh, you know. Um, secondary to a lot of the other texts with uh, the arrogance and, you know, the principles and the, you know, the uh, expectations of, you know, upper class and such like that. But it is a very prominent aspect of it that even in 1948 feels very palpable and very uh, apparent, you know, the, the, the dynamic between the, the two main characters there played by John Dahl and Farley Granger. And there was um, a, I was going to say there's a similar subtext in a later film that Hitchcock made with, Stranger, uh, Strangers on a Train, and that kind yeah. of carries over. And it's this, there is a slightly, just like the tiniest kind of uncomfortable idea of uh, enforcing the idea of, you know, evil homosexuality, you know, or, or corrupted, you know, in the ideals of that. But it's more product of the time and the coding than it is like today. I don't think you have to connect those two implicitly. And I mean, you can have gay people do a plot like this and, yeah. and, to have them believe that they are the superior beings and they're looking after these inferiors. And, um, I, I think the the changes in them are so interesting, especially Philip, who I think is so key to, to understanding where, uh, where this is going to go. And he keeps dropping the ball in really funny and interesting ways. 
Well, and, the, and their dynamic is really what's the the kind of electrifying current throughout the film. Uh, you know, there's a there's a love triangle subplot that's going on that um, John Dahl's character Brandon is kind of you know prodding at throughout, but it's so much less interesting than the dynamic between him and Philip, which is this constant kind of battle of uh, you know almost like it's a very you know uh, psychosexual uh, conflict going on throughout the entire story and this like edging it. it and and John Dahl plays up the you know aspect of it so phenomenally he's so you know uh <laughs> kind of electric to watch as he just like it looks like he's edging himself along the entire film as he's just kind of getting off on this idea of will he or will he not be discovered you know I like that he can hold both capacities well I feel like Philip is more in a one note uh, well Brandon I think is obviously domineering in this relationship and it shows that um I think the whole thing is sexual for both of them between each other. Uh, uh, just the whole experience of it and what they're doing. Um, it's their secret and they're withholding it. Is somehow they're yeah. getting off on this. It's, it's hard to pinpoint what Philip gets out of it exactly because from the get-go, he clearly doesn't want to be a part of it, even though it's, it's his hands that commit the murder in the beginning we see. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, he has reservations about everything from the start, and and doesn't want to do this party. Didn't want to do the murder to begin with. But he's he's kind of stuck under Brandon's thumb and feels uh, committed to him again because it's it's so clear that he's that that Brandon is pulling the strings of, of Philip and manipulating him in in that relationship. Again, he is very domineering, and Philip is uh, submissive, and and they clearly have some kind of uh, you know. That, like relationship that feeds off of that and gives them both satisfaction but it it definitely seems like this is starting to reach the breaking point for philip's character yeah he's breaking the whole movie in in some really interesting ways uh, uh what is it about him like uh strangling a chicken or something yeah so that's that's one of the key moments of the film where uh, where Brandon starts to kind of like, again, the, the whole time he's like dropping little like seeds or implications of something to, to get off further and kind of like create suspicion about things. And the, the strangling of the chicken story is, you know, kind of this wink to Philip specifically, at which point he kind of explodes and creates a denial, which puts everyone on edge. And it's, it's a key moment in the film as well, because it's where the immersion of the single take drops for one of the few moments and there's a very uh oblique cut to uh james stewart's character you know from philip in this close-up to signify that he has become aware and suspicious that something more is going on here and that happens one other time in the film and it's and it shows you the power that editing can have when you're more reserved about when you choose to cut this is a, this is a prime example of that for me, that's when the film really picks up too. Once Stewart's onto them, and uh, that's when the plot begins unraveling. And Hitchcock gets to have a lot of fun. Um, it's very obvious when he's having fun with his movies. And um, I afterwards, just today, I watched um, Under Capricorn, which uh, takes some of the six, seven-minute takes and uh, turns them into a costume drama. Um, some of it harder to shoot. He's shooting on like multiple levels and moving large environments around, but uh, he's also said that that was just a vehicle for him to get um, Ingmar Bergman, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, Bergman. In. Yeah, uh, Ingrid Bergman, which Ingrid, uh, yeah. he, there's funny, there's a little nod to 
her and Cary Grant and Notorious, which was one of his just recent films before this at one point. I don't know if you caught that when they're talking about uh, the the they're all at the party you know they're talking about movies they, they they watched recently and the 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 uh david the the victim's mother is talking about how she saw this movie with ingrid bergman and Cary grant recently and it was the something of something or no it was just the something and it's very clearly an allusion to notorious which is the uh only other hitchcock film we've covered on the podcast so far yeah we've We've got to get more in, but we're working our way through, and that builds a bridge between them, I think. Yeah, and, and, and it's a, it's just a funny, like, cheeky nod to his other works there. And there's a funny line then from Jimmy Stewart where he says the last film he watched was had Mary Pickford in it, who was, like, the most famous silent movie star of the time. Uh, Jimmy Stewart, I think, is really incredible and ties this whole thing together. Uh, just, just his action in the last... Uh, the last half of the film is incredible. Oh, he's so great because he uh, he embodies, I think, uh, th- this integral aspect of his character, which is the naivete of holding these kind of uh, destructive philosophies, which he imparts onto the boys as their uh, headmaster uh, at the, the the school they went to. And he, he kind of carelessly passes along these... Uh, you know, ideals of, you know, superiority and, you know, the, you know, gray morality of murder and what, you know, should be committed with the practices of Nietzsche and stuff. And, you know, he, he doesn't realize how, uh, you know, that idea and passing it along has kind of informed that. And, and at the end, when he's like, realized the kind of monstrous person that Brandon's become, he, he kind of pushes away and tr- tries to push the responsibility onto him without recognizing that, you know, it's his own teachings that, that he, he's supplanted that in them as well, unconsciously. He's, and they talk about it as well, Brendan does specifically, that he doesn't think that he would, that Jimmy Stewart's character would be someone, he, he's someone who can practice and appreciate these ideals, uh, but would never actually implement them himself. And that's kind of the difference there. Yeah. Um, that he that he's read them and understood them, but he hasn't. That you don't want to practice what you read and understand always. I, th- and, I think, um, yeah, his his character embodies a different level of malevolence. That's that's a stepping stone on the way to Brandon's pure brand of evil. And again, it's just the idea of practicing them in in the privacy and in conversation, but not realizing the consequence of that as well. And and how discussing it openly opens the door to. Uh, you know, going through with it, even if you yourself never would. I mean, it kind of just shows like uh, uh, just maybe a distrust for intellectuals and, and what the schools are teaching as well. Uh, right. Well, and, I, and it's I feel that, like rope has a lot of subcontext that we could get into. It does. There's an interesting aspect like this idea of mentor-mentee relationships and when that boundary is crossed, which seems to be the case with uh, you know, the boys and Jimmy Stewart's character where he has taken on a more affable liking to these, uh, you know, two boys and that uh, causes, you know, a a mix in their uh, understanding of the dynamic and what they they should take away from him, you know. Um, well, how do you feel about Rope? How do you feel it stands within your understanding of Hitchcock? I think Rope is a very phenomenal film and classically Hitchcock. Um, I think it's, um, you know, in, in the, the upper tier. Uh, again, it's it's held back only 
slightly by its you know kind of modest ambitions and the uh the limitations of what hitchcock was able to achieve in his idea but for what it is i can't imagine anyone else doing it better you know even then again i i love how he's able to maintain the shots for so long uh without making you realize that the shot is still going on and how he can implement you know a variety of close-ups and medium shots and wides all within the single take and seamlessly transition between all three to uh, tell the story as he needs to but it's also just an interesting suspense piece on its own right outside of the technical flourishes i mean uh, hitchcock style usually relies on so much montage and moving through things in different cuts that uh, you could just feel the challenge of it but of course in this one it's kind of pre-cut i mean it, as long as you storyboarded it and moved through it in a way that, that makes sense and you've drawn out all the plans for movements. Um, it's very choreographed and I, I kind of enjoy that about it, that it's so formalized and um, understood before it's taken place because uh, for me, I think it's all intentionality by then. Um, even the cuts that aren't great are large understood risks that they're taking because they're making this film. Uh, uh, those are reasons why you wouldn't make it, but I believe those are uh, very valuable risks to take and ones that are understood and they, I don't count them against the film. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's a totally understandable thing to do. That's something you sign up for when you, you watch the film because it's just, there's, there's not much way around it. Uh, they could be smoother. There are some examples where it's better than others. I think in particular, the strongest uh, transition between uh, magazines is uh, when uh, Jimmy Stewart has to go open the chest and it and it like it zooms in on the chest you know in a very fluid way and because it, it changes with the action so you know it's it's like a scene change basically between him going to open it and opening and seeing like the tone is is such a uh, stark difference that the uh, the, the kind of jarring nature of the, the move in there works with it whereas in other examples like we stated it's a little more you know uh, you know uh, not as smoothly communicated for the longest time just the way films were edited wasn't wasn't quite changing i mean the process was largely the same so uh, to figure all that out before i think is kind of remarkable because it's not something i feel like is often considered in the early film how it will be edited and it, and it is more than just the technical exercise the story itself is very engaging and interesting the characters are are richly realized uh even if i think the uh the, the subtext or like the, the revelations of them can be uh somewhat surface like they're not deep characters necessarily but they've got something to them still worth analyzing and i think a lot of the characters are invented for the film there are a bunch of them that are just missing from the stage play apparently uh, I think it does a good job too. Even before they get to the party, they're running through their uh, suspicions and beliefs about how these people will be. And then we get to see that contrasted with how they are. And uh, it's good at building those expectations around these people and uh, also pointing out and signposting who we need to care about. Yeah. Again, some characters kind of fall by the wayside in terms of interests, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, but because the main crew is really it's it's those three. It's John Dahl, Farley Granger and Jimmy Stewart. And they have the most compelling dynamic. But the other characters are necessary, too, for the plot. Uh, they're the just maid not, is very good at it. Yeah. They're just not as well sketched as those three characters, um, you know, which which happens sometimes. Uh, 
and the victim's parents play into it significantly. There, it's a lot of fun. It's, oh yeah, it's that's so, that's it's such so a dark. torturous. That's such a torturous aspect. That's so macabre. That... It's just like his birthday, birthday, death day party with his parents, like at a dinner table where he's buried, and they're not aware of it. It's such, and it's, and when it's so dark, and when they're uh, when they're talking about these ideals of being able to to kill with uh, you know impunity, basically because they're of a higher class or worth. And, uh, you know, the victim's father is, like, very perturbed by all of this and taking great objection. Yeah. And it's even worse. It, it just it, And he's all the while, he's wondering where his son is and why he hasn't shown up to this event yet. It's, it's so, like, gruesomely torturous for, for us as an audience members, I think, and if, if you sympathize. Like, the cue with, like, the books and the way they're tied up and, and taken out also... All really drives all that home. Yeah, and and again, it's all very sexual, like like psychosexual in nature, and that it's all like this very twisted, morbid <laughs> practice. And as and as an audience, we end up being complicit in it by taking it in and enjoying the twisted nature of uh, this narrative. I mean, even like the title is already like a situation, and it, it already sounds somehow uh, broke, but it just implies something else that it's. Uh, I mean, it it implies like knots, and that it's like a tied up story, and you know, it. Oh. I I like everything about the movie, really. Um, I even the faults I find are very intentional about it. Yeah, it's it's a really fantastic one, and again, over time, it's been appraised and reappraised. I think there's some push against it for being just like you know again people think it's just a one note experimental project of Hitchcock's, but it re- really is more than that, and I see why someone like yourself would consider it a personal favorite if not the you know the champion of his uh oeuvre in, in total uh There's but like it's like the problem that i like vertigo and psycho and north by northwest more like as movies i think they're they're far superior works but uh, this one just captivates me a different way that i find it my favorite yeah and, and i think it's very unique to have that uh perspective and, and again having rewatched and going in with that thought that this was calvin's favorite personal Hitchcock you know I was wondering to see exactly why and I could see it I see why and what's appealing about it even if it's not his quote-unquote like masterpiece so to speak yeah I think it's different from his masterpieces he made so many movies that this one just stands out um uh, except for the one that came right after uh when he got when he got too big with his producing and thought he'd just make a a costume drama for some reason. Um, well, well, another one, one stands as most unique, I think. Another one that's similar in terms of like being a uh, drawing room set movie about planning a, a murder or executing this this perfect murder or you know and getting away with it is uh, the 1954 film Dial M for Murder, which is also very very good, um, but you know has its own set of problems as well. Uh, you yeah. know. Uh, and- Dialogue for murder, I do find a lot in common here. Yeah, and and they're and they're both fantastic, but they're different. You know, it's not like Hitch is retreading the same ground necessarily. It's just a similar type of film with a different twist. Um, both very good. I think we'll probably get to that one next or soon after. Eventually, hopefully, we're I'm hoping we cover more Hitchcock films in general. It's kind of uh, atrocious that this is only the second one we covered. We got to kind of hit the big names. Maybe in October we'll co- we'll cover Psycho or something. That's a a huge one that's worth talking about. Uh, it's it's kind of mm, maybe. <laughs> you, you <laughs> I know, just I've want got, to get out your thoughts on the birds. 
I've got my own take on some of uh, Hitchcock's other films. He wasn't a perfect filmmaker, uh, but, you know, I'm not going to sully his name right now. I'd, I'd rather talk about the films that I, I love from him, which uh, there are uh, so many of. And this is only the second one we've had the pleasure of covering so far. Um, I'm sure we'll get to more soon. I, I think we're probably good to end here. Uh, thanks yeah. for bearing with the situation. <laughs> Yeah, uh, hopefully this uh, one comes out very well still. Uh, any uh, interruptions or loud children storming around uh, didn't uh, sully the experience any. <laughs> oh, yeah, I doubt it. I think it's probably perfectly fine. Yeah. And Thank thanks you. for doing it in one continuous take. Yes, that's, that's the nice thing as well. All right, Calvin, I uh, will talk to you soon. Thanks for making this one happen. Okay, take care.